Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Casual Criminalist. As always, I'm your casual criminalist, Simon. Welcome to the show. Robert's written me a script today. Diane Downs, hungry like the wolf. If you're new to The Casual Criminalist, a very warm welcome. What happens here is uh, I've never read this script before. I have no idea what this is about. Um, Apparently, it's about someone being hungry like a wolf, which could mean many things, possibly involving murder and cannibalism. I shouldn't say that so early in the video because I'll get demonetized on YouTube. But (laughs) hey-ho. It's part of the life of having a true crime channel is demonetization, but it is what it is. We make do. Let us jump into it. At 10.48 p.m. on the night of the 19th of May, 1983, a car pulled up to the emergency room of Mackenzie Willamette Hospital in Springfield. Oregon. The woman in the car yelled for help and frantically honked her car's horn. A couple of nurses came out and saw a slender blonde woman in jeans and plaid shirt stepping out of the car. Her arm was visibly injured. What's going on here? One of the nurses asked her. She replied, Somebody just shot my kids. The nurses acted quickly, calling the hospital staff out in order to help the injured children. There were three of them in all. Eight-year-old Christiane and her three-year-old brother, Danny, were in critical condition and immediately rushed inside for treatment. However, for their seven-year-old sister, Cheryl, it was already too late. She was dead before she even reached the hospital. While the medical staff attended to the children, a nurse spoke to the mother to comfort her and find out what had happened. The woman's name was Elizabeth Downs, but she went by her middle name, Diane. She was 27 years old and had worked as a mail carrier. According to Diane, she was driving down a local road that evening when a shaggy-haired stranger stood in the road and stopped the car before demanding the car's keys. When Diane refused, the man unloaded his gun at the family before fleeing the scene. Damn, that's a bit of an escalation. And also, if you're getting carjacked, what are you doing? Give the person your car. I always find this remarkable, where people are like, no, 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 I got mugged and I didn't give the people my stuff. And I'm like, are you mental? Give them your stuff. You don't know what they're going to do. They could stab you. And it doesn't matter. You'll get a new wallet. You'll lose a little bit of money. Maybe you'll have insurance that will pay for it. It's crazy. Diane herself had been shot in her left arm, though her wounds were comparatively minor. Her parents, Wes and Willa Den Fredrickson, lived less than two miles from the hospital. Despite it being the middle of the night, the two of them rushed there as soon as they were called so quickly that Wes had forgotten his dentures and had to make a return trip. Uh, despite it being the middle of the night, your daughter and her family have just been shot. That's not the sort of shit you'd be like, nah, 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 come there in the morning. (laughs) What are you doing? You go. You go. That's what you do. Your parents. It's what happens. Meanwhile, Willowden tried to process what had happened to her grandchildren. She had been with them mere hours beforehand. While the children were being treated, Sergeant Rob Rutherford from Lane County Sheriff's Office arrived to speak to Diane about the incident. Worried that the killer was still out there, he asked her if she could show him where the shooting took place. After Diane's arm was put in a cast, she, along with her father Wes, rode with Rutherford to the bridge where the children were shot. On the way, Diane told him about a memento she had just bought. I bought the kids a beautiful brass unicorn, and I had their names engraved on it just a couple of days ago. It was, you know, It meant we had a new life. I shouldn't have bought it. 
When they arrived at the scene, a bridge out in the middle of nowhere on Old Mohawk Road, there was nobody around. Diane spoke about an icky yellow car she had seen, but there was no sign of it. Whoever this man was, he had long since fled the area. Why would a man carjack someone while driving his own car? What are you going to do with that car afterwards? That's a weird... That something is... I'm already like something's not adding up. Something weird is going on. This is not as simple as it's made out to be. Yes, and she's making no sense. When Diane arrived back at the hospital, doctors stepped out to inform her of the condition of her children. Christy still needed a lot of medical attention. They were unsure if she would survive the night. Cheryl had been dead for over an hour. The young mother remained stoic upon hearing the news. However, doctors were cautiously optimistic about Danny. Upon examining his body, they found that the bullet had not hit any of his vital organs. You mean it missed his heart? Diane asked. <laughs> what was it? Dan, I like, I am. I don't want to say it because if I'm wrong, it's going to make me sound like a right twat. But my little bells in my mind are already dingling for Diane having, you know, let's just leave it at that. That sounds bad. Have you seen a doctor? Also, the episodes, I just realized the episode's called Diane Downs, which is she implies she's our, our antagonist today, which is a weird kind of spoilery thing, isn't it? I didn't think of that until now. Or maybe that's why I'm thinking this kind of subconsciously. But my bells are ringing for Diane. As officers interviewed her about the incident, they found that Diane was very articulate and helpful. She appeared to be quite intelligent, and there were no signs that she had been drinking or doing drugs. As she described her attacker, though, they felt that her replies were stilted as if she was holding information back. Perhaps the mysterious gunman had some connection to her. They requested to search her home for evidence, to which Diane complied. Upon searching the home, however, they didn't find much of note. They collected some guns that she owned, as well as her diary, hoping it would have some clues as to who her mystery attacker was. They also came across the brass unicorn that she spoke of earlier. As for her car, along with the bullet cases, police recovered a Duran Duran cassette tape, which was in the player. Also in the night, Wes, Diane's father, called Steve Downs, 28, Diane's ex-husband and father of her children. Steve had been staying in Arizona, and upon hearing what had happened, he took the first plane to Oregon in the middle of the night. The following morning, Diane called Chandler Post Office in Arizona as soon as it opened to speak to some of her friends and former co-workers. In particular, she wanted to talk to Robert Knickerbocker, also known as Nick, a man with whom she had been having an affair, though he had broken it off earlier in the year. Prior to the incident, why is it an affair? Oh, sorry, he's married. I was like, she's divorced, but he's married. Um, it's in right there in the same sentence. <laughs> Sometimes I wonder how small my brain actually is. Prior to this incident, he had not heard from her for weeks, so he reluctantly spoke to her. Upon hearing what had happened, Nick offered his condolences, but declined to speak with them much longer. Among the men from Lane County who came to the hospital the following morning was Prosecutor Fred Hugie. Upon seeing the bodies of the injured children, he felt a paternalistic affection for them, wanting to do whatever he could to bring their attacker to justice. Oh, I like this. I like Prosecutor Fred Hugie. I like it when we're introduced to some super competent person who's like, I am going to figure this Because... Often on casual criminalists, it's like, and then the police ignored an absolute litany of clues and failed to do their jobs because of, well, nothing more than apparent laziness. And in this one, it's like, I already get the feeling, like, my bells are ringing for Diane being, you know, she's up to something. And my bells are ringing for Fred being a legend. Let's go. After a long night, Christie's condition stabilized. While badly injured, it became more and more likely that she would survive her ordeal alongside her brother. Diane quietly entered the room and sat down next to her, squeezing Christie's hands and repeating the words, Christie, I love you. However, instead of the tender reunion between mother and daughter that you might expect, something unusual happens. Oh, God. No, 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 no. 
Oh god, I know where this is going. Christie's heart rate spiked considerably to a pulse of 147 times a minute, well above a normal resting rate of 80. Her heart rate remained elevated and her mother left the room sometime later. As a staff member described it, there was fear in Christie's eyes. So who exactly was this woman? What do you mean? It was the mother, no? Diane, 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 Diane. It was Diane, the mother. Oh, sorry, this is like a, a, a rhetoric, not rhetorical, but like, who was she? Like, what's up with her? Hospital staff and investigators noticed inconsistencies in her story, not to mention the implausibility of the incident. Was there really a deranged killer wandering around town that night? Was this attack truly random? Or was Diane involved in some way? And why did her own daughter seem afraid of her? Join us as we take a look at the life of Diane Downs, the mother and lover who held a dark secret. Oh, I have totally misinterpreted these last couple of paragraphs. I assumed that Diane goes into Christie's room. Like, my vibe right now, and it seems to be increasingly confirmed, is that maybe she murdered her own children and that she was going in to finish the job with Christie so she doesn't have evidence. Like, so she's not an eyewitness to her attempted murder. And it's like, no, her pulse is just going faster, not because she's given her some sort of drug that's going to kill her, but because she's scared. That is so intense. Stay tuned for further details. Today's video is brought to you by Shopify. Look, don't be a copycat entrepreneur. Unleash your killer business idea to the world with Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify make it simple to sell to anybody from anywhere. Look, whatever you're selling, you could be selling, I don't know, some physical widget, you could be selling some digital product, whatever it is, you can do it with Shopify. They just they just simplify and they make it easy. And there's the thing about, you know, growing. You can start off really small. It's really simple. You just got one thing. Maybe you don't even know if it's going to sell. It will. It will. I got faith in you. And then when it blows up and becomes this absolutely massive enterprise that you're running, good news, Shopify grows with you, so uh, you don't have to change platforms because changing platforms... I don't know if you've ever changed platforms or anything, but changing like anything is a nightmare, let alone changing the thing that you run your business on. And that's why Shopify is so fantastic. They cover all of the sales channels to successfully grow your business from an in-person POS system, that's point of sale, by the way, to an all-in-one e-commerce platform. They even run across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram, plus 24-7 customer support and free on-demand business courses. They help you succeed every step of the way. Lo, when you're ready to take your idea out of the world, do it with Shopify, the commerce platform powering millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. It's your turn to try Shopify for free and start selling anywhere. This is Possibility powered by Shopify. Sign up for a free trial at shopify.com casual. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com casual to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash casual. And now back to today's show. Living in a Lonely World Elizabeth Diane Fredrickson was born on the 7th of August 1955 in Phoenix, Arizona. Diane's mother, Willa Den, was practically still a child herself, giving birth to Diane. She was just 17, while her husband, Wes, was set 25. The couple wound up having five children in all, the last being born when Willa Den herself was 25. Outwardly, the Fredricksons were a perfect, happy family. They were very religious, visiting the church twice on Sundays and again on Wednesdays. Twice on Sundays? Jesus! Talk about taking up half your bloody weekends. 
That sucks. As a child, Diane was shy, lacking confidence. She was often bullied by her classmates and too frail to excel at sports. Yet she was very smart for her age, burying herself in books and excelling academically. However, part of this was due to her father. Wes was very strict when it came to homework, going so far as to have his children memorize the dictionary when there were no assignments in the evening. Oh my god, dude, that would suck. When I when it was a day with light homework after school, I'd be like, oh thank god, yes, free evening. My dad wasn't like, now you've got to do extra homework that I assigned. <laughs> no one was like that. It's like, cool, enjoy your free evening. As she entered her teenage years, Diane aspired to be popular, which was difficult considering her strict upbringing. She would wear long skirts as she left home to appease her parents, rolling them up as she arrived at school. Eventually, her mother would catch on as to why her skirt seemed wrinkled. One day, Wes arrived home, complaining about a guy with a beautiful head of hair he had seen. It inspired him to order Diane to cut her hair short and curl it as tightly as possible. That's super weird. <laughs> It's like I saw a guy today. It's like Wes. <laughs> he had the most beautiful hair. I think I. Daughter, shave your hair off. <laughs> I had urgings I didn't want to have. God has smited me. No one quite figured out why a man so obsessed with gender roles would ask his daughter to cut her hair so short. However, the strict upbringing was not the worst part of Diane's childhood. When she was 12 years old, before she even knew what sex was, her father began to molest her. Okay, again, bang on about the father, you know. He's got... <laughs> I saw a man with a beautiful head of hair. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but, like, he's got all sorts of issues. Like, you know, being, like, super religious and all that. <laughs> I will spare you the details here, thank you very much, but just know that this was not a one-off event. She had been trained all her life not to fight back, not to tell anyone. She could not talk to her mother, nor did she have any friends to discuss this with. Diane cut her wrists to deal with the pain. She became physically ill from a lack of sleep, so ill that her father took her to the doctor, though she was instructed not to tell him anything. On the ride home, on a stretch of road in the Arizona desert, Wes told Diane to take her clothes off. She acquiesced at first, but when he demanded she strip further, she protested, screaming at her father, trying her best to open the car door and jump out. Before she could escape, he pulled her back and locked the door. The car swerved in the road, and a highway patrolman pulled them over. The patrolman questioned them, but Diane was tight-lipped, scared that she would lose her home if her father was arrested. Regardless, the patrolman noticed her lack of clothing and wished to speak to her dad in private. The officer and Wes had a conversation out of earshot, in which the father appeared uncharacteristically coy. Whatever was said, the sexual abuse stopped. Holy dude. <laughs> that policeman must have... <laughs> I mean, arrest him, for sake, but second best option is, like, bro, if you do any of that again i'm not a policeman i'm going to come to your house and i'm gonna f i will find you and i will kill you because f this in the years following diane became more outgoing learning how to put on makeup dress less conservatively and went from being a shy quiet girl to an extremely talkative one i'm still thinking about what a legend that police officer is i know he should have arrested him but it's also like that is just like See, it's like that must have been the scariest talking to that that man ever had. Like, holy sh At the age of 15, she met Steve Downs at the high school in Phoenix and the two began dating. Wes and Willarden thought Steve was too immature for Diane and urged her to date other men, which of course only made her more attracted to him. Growing up, Diane loved animals and had all types of pets, but over time, this too proved to be a source of trauma. Her cocker spaniel was crushed by a tractor 
that Steve drove. Oh my lord. Dan blamed her father for the dog's death, as he had called the dog moments before the accident. She also cared for a pet goat and its baby, both of which were killed by her father. Dude, your father's a f psycho. Like, I know Diane is like the um the antagonist of today's story, but it just brings me back to that whole thing again, like all the time. Don't your kids. Don't do it. Don't abuse them. Don't kill their pets. Because yeah, you're you're making, you're just perpetuating the cycle. I know, look, you're probably because your parents were fucked up. But how about you break that cycle and don't be a piece of It's not that hard. Lastly, Wes shot Diane's cats when they contracted ringworm. I'm pretty sure like you can just fix ringworm. I think I had ringworm once. <laughs> Isn't it? Ringworm doesn't actually involve worms. It's just you get like a rash which is in the shape of a ring. Right? It's like a it's like a bacterial infection. Steve joined the Navy in 1972, and the pair were separated for a time. After graduating high school, Dan went to Pacific Coast Baptist Bible College to become a missionary. However, she only lasted two semesters at the school, ultimately being kicked out for promiscuity. After Steve's store in the Navy was over, he returned home, and the two reunited. Eventually, Wes forced the two into a shotgun marriage. Literally. One night, when Diane did not return home after a date, his father showed up at Steve's door with a shotgun, telling him to either marry Diane or bring her home. A week later, Later, the two married. Now they were married, she was officially Mrs. Elizabeth Diane Downs. Two weeks after their wedding, Steve told Diane that he had a date. Evidently, he had asked this woman out a month before, and he felt he had to keep his word. He asked Diane to press his pants for him, and she obliged. Steve, that's a weird thing to do. It's okay, you can phone the person up and be like, Listen, I'm sorry, I know we had a date for next month, but I have since got married, so uh, still want to go on a date? The person will be like, No, I do not. Thank you for telling me. A little ditty about Steve and Diane. On her wedding night, Diane's mother gave her a box of birth control pills, but after Steve's infidelity, she decided to stop taking them, hoping to conceive a child. Ah, we're full of good decisions in today's episode, aren't we? That was sarcasm. Her wish was granted, and before long, her first child, Christine, was born. Diane doted on her baby while lamenting the fact that married life was not much better than living with her father. Steve was demanding and abusive, insisting that Diane cook him meals right at five o'clock. He would tell her to dress up for nights out, then become furious when other men looked at her. Oh no, Diane. You had a she had parents, and now you've got a husband. He'd choke me, shake me, throw me down almost every day. Never mind. I just want to say, sorry, never mind. Like, I mean, I should have used stronger words than Diane needed to take control of her life somehow, and almost on a whim, she decided to sign up for the Air Force, baffling her husband. It was short-lived. Diane served in the Air Force for only three weeks before being discharged. Soon after, Diane suffered a concussion while playfully wrestling with her husband. <laughs> sure you did, Diane. Sure, and I mean, like, that wasn't playful wrestling. And while I know what you're thinking, both parties admitted it was an accident. Again, like... I know what I'm thinking, and I'm still thinking that, because Steve is like, yo, if you don't tell them that we were playfully wrestling, I'm going to give you a real concussion, because that's the piece of that he is. After a blackout while driving, her doctor advised her to stop taking birth control pills. Soon after, she was pregnant with her second child, Cheryl Lynn. While the first child brought joy to the young couple, Cheryl's birth enraged Steve. He felt that he could not take care of a second child, and at the very least, he hoped it would be a boy. One evening, while preparing dinner, Diane was alerted by 18-month-old Christine. Cheryl was choking. Dan quickly patted the child on the back, managing her to get to spit out what was in her mouth. Moments later, Steve demanded to know where his supper was. Diane explained the situation with tears in her eyes. Husbands took a look at her daughter and said, Well, she looks okay now. Bro. Bro, get your 
together, my man. In an attempt to stem any more children, Steve got a vasectomy. However, he failed to attend a follow-up appointment, and soon after, Diane was pregnant a third time. You know, vasectomy is probably one of those things you want to... Uh, check that it's worked because it's one of those things where it's like follow-up appointment fairly easy consequences of not going to the follow-up appointment very substantial you gotta learn this stuff i'm not kidding it's important steve accused her of cheating on him but a checkup confirmed that he was still fertile ultimately diane got an abortion in 1977, Diane took her children and ran away from the marriage. Excellent decision. She went to live with her... No, no, sorry, I said that. It almost sounded sarcastic coming out of my mouth, but this is an excellent decision. She went to live with her sister, Kathy, in Flagstaff. Flagstaff? Flagstaff. Flagstaff sounds... I don't know. I don't care. There she got a position as a concrete truck driver. Unfortunately, the job only lasted a month. The reason? Diane was raped by her boss. Jesus. She swiftly returned to Steve. This episode of her life may be brief, but it's tragic all the same. It's getting worse. Yeah. Dude, she got raped by her f boss. Jesus. Diane took on a new job at a trailer park where she hit it off with a fellow employee. For the first time in their marriage, she had an affair. And another. And a third. The type of man she was attracted to was, in her own words, a good specimen. That's a kind of weird thing to say. One morning, Steve followed her to confirm his suspicions that she was cheating on him. When he caught them in the act, a fight ensued. One of her lover's roommates pulled a gun on him. Fortunately, nobody was shot. However, there was more news. Diane was pregnant once more with a baby whose father was not her husband's. Steve threatened to kick her and the other two children out of the house, but ultimately things worked out as well as they could have. After nine months, Danny was born, and Steve was more than happy to have a son, even if it wasn't actually his. Now, with the three children in the household, the two parents became even more unstable. Dan would oscillate between being a kind and loving mother and a verbally abusive parent no different than her father. Dan left Steve again, moving in with Danny's father. A week later, she came back. Soon after, Diane learned about surrogate parenting while watching TV. Isn't this where this is where you carry someone else's child for them, right? Or is that surrogate surrogate parents? Or surrogate isn't that like surrogacy? I don't know. Let's find out. I'm sure it will be explained. She decided that this should be a calling in life and decided to apply. She was given a number of tests to determine if she'd be a good fit for the program. For IQ and other intelligence-based tests, she excelled. Why would you need to test her IQ? If you're a surrogate mother, like, if you're carrying someone else's baby, none of your genetic material is in that baby. It's the father and the mother's who's implanted into you, right? However, when it came time to the psychological evaluations, the test givers were much more skeptical, noting her abusive upbringing and severe mental health issues. They were, they were concerned that if she was a surrogate mother, she would refuse to give up the baby. However, due to... Oh, okay, so maybe it's just like they're testing her intelligence to make sure she can, like, follow instructions or something? So, I guess those are more IQ tests, just to make sure she's not really stupid. However, due to the fact that she had already birthed three healthy children, she was accepted. In the time spent waiting to become a surrogate, the Downs' marriage continued to crumble. Dan continued to see Danny's father and had numerous affairs with other men during this period. When Diane was interviewed years later, she defended herself, saying, In two years' time, I had ten separate lovers. Two years. That's not very many. And less than half of them were married. Finally, 
Diane and Steve divorced. Two weeks after he moved out, another of Diane's lovers moved in, bringing two daughters of his own. The relationship was, as you would expect, also short-lived. Shortly thereafter, Diane went to a clinic in Kentucky and became pregnant with her surrogate child. During this period, one of her neighbors took concern over Diane's lackluster parenting, going so far as to let Cheryl regularly spend time at her house. One day, the neighbor wrote an angry letter to Diane, prompting her to storm over to the neighbor's house. During the argument, Diane said to Cheryl, You're such a bad little girl. If you don't obey mummy, you deserve to be killed. Oh my lord. I don't even call my children bad. I wouldn't call my daughter a bad little girl. It feels like she doesn't, she doesn't, I mean, she's three. So she doesn't, she's not gonna, she doesn't, she's not being bad on purpose. She just might do something bad. And then you don't need to say, it's like, please don't do that. Or like, you need to explain it. But like, I, I, I take an issue with the first part of that sentence. Not if you don't dis, if you don't obey mummy, I'm kind of like, yeah, you got to do what dad said. Dad, dad said sometimes. I think that's fine. But there's three parts of that sentence. The first one I disagree with, and then the third one, you deserve to be killed. It's just insane. She belongs in hell, Reverend. Despite being divorced, Steve was still a presence in Diane's life, regularly coming over to check on her kids. One night, as she was lying on the couch, he smirked and pointed a gun to her head. Before she could even comprehend what was happening, he pulled the trigger and there was a hollow click. Finally, Diane flew to Kentucky to deliver the baby. It was born without complications, and despite concerns that she wouldn't give up the baby, it was handed over to its parents without any issues. Diane recalls that the baby's parents were far more excited to meet their new child than Steve had been with his own kids. Yeah, I'm not surprised in any way whatsoever, because if someone's gone to the effort of, like, surrogacy and stuff because they can't have kids, they really want kids because that is expensive. Afterwards, she returned to her job at the Chandler Post Office in Arizona. She had numerous affairs, but one man in particular would change her life. Robert Knickerbocker. Ah, the guy from earlier. Oh, Nikki, you're so fine. Diane and Robert Knickerbocker, who went by Nick, first met each other in November 1981. Wow, this is back in the day. I kind of lost track about when this was happening. I didn't realize surrogate, surrogacy surrogate pregnancy or whatever it's called was a thing back in the 1980s that's wild for simon's sake i'm going to go ahead and refer to him as nick from this point on because having a key character with the same name as the author of this piece oh right yes will cause confusion very fast i don't think it will because i don't think you've mentioned your name so far robert writer of this piece but that's fine that's fine you're the writer you make your big writing decisions i'll just read it (laughs) Diane had been pregnant with her surrogate child at the time, but after she gave birth and returned to work, she and Nick worked together on a regular basis. He was not the first man at the post office she had had an affair with, nor was he a stranger to affairs himself. Diane had also been looking to become a surrogate mother a second time and was worried that she'd get pregnant if she kept having affairs. As it turns out, though, Nick was infertile. May the 19th was the first day the two became intimate. We know this because Diane marked it on her calendar. Okay. <laughs> Nick wanted the affair to be kept private, but Diane talked about him with their co-workers so regularly that there wasn't much he could do. Well, there is, Nick. It's called not having a f***ing affair, mate. Nick had hoped it would remain a casual fling, but it quickly became fear that Diane had marriage on her mind. Of course, there was a problem. Nick did not want to have children. He got along well with Diane's kids, but he had no desire to be a father himself, which is why he'd gotten a vasectomy. Oh, he wasn't infertile. He had decided to have a vasectomy. Not only that, but he had not given up his own marriage just yet. Didn't you say he was no stranger to affairs? It's like, this will be the last one. 
<laughs> then I'm going back to my marriage. The last affair, I promise. Nick, 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 Nick. Come on now. Before Diane's second trip to the clinic uh, to become a surrogate mother, she contracted an STI. She accused Nick of giving in to her, despite the fact that she herself had slept with four men that summer. To protect his wife, Nick came clean about the entire affair and broke it off with Diane just before her next flight to Kentucky. At the clinic, she was unable to conceive. When she arrived back home, Steve picked her up at the... I'm very curious to how much she gets paid for this. Like, because I know surrogacy is mad expensive, but how much does the actual surrogate mother get for that? It's got to be a lot of money, right? It's got to be, like, tens of thousands of dollars. Yeah? Because you're doing nine months of your life, and that's fairly intense, and giving birth is painful, you know? Like... It's got to be, I, I'd guess, like 50 grand, right? Back in 80s money, 20 grand? I have no idea. But that, that would seem... It's got to be a lot, right? <laughs> the cadet's logic is sound. When she arrived back home, Steve picked her up at the airport instead of Nick, hoping to reconcile after a fight the two of them had had two weeks earlier, in which he had beaten her so badly that she showed up to work the next day with a black eye. <sighs> Dude, this is just so full of people doing things. That night, Diane locked herself in the bathroom with a gun and pulled the trigger, frightening her ex-husband. She threatened to kill Steve, but he was able to talk her down enough to grab the gun away from her, taking it with him. Diane remained obsessed with Nick, going so far as to get a rose tattoo with his name on her shoulder. They still worked together, and before long, the affair was back on. In October, another strange incident occurred. Diane's trailer was partially burned. The home was still habitable, but she wound up getting $7,000 payout after only making $1,200 in insurance payments. Well, that is the kind of point of insurance. It's like the cost of insuring, I don't know, my car or whatever, is obviously less. Like most of the time, I just end up paying that money and never claiming on it. And then the one time you're like, well, yeah, I already paid like $1,200 insurance and now I get a new car because I destroyed it. Oh God, I had to take my car to the repair shop this morning because I wasn't driving. My wife was driving just along the road. It wasn't her fault. Someone just pulled out into the road. (laughs) It's like, what are you doing, mate? And uh, it was really minor, not a big accident or anything, but it hit the front quarter panel, the front wheel, the driver's side door, the rear passenger door. <laughs> and it's like, they were like it's going to be like, oh, what's the amount of dollars? Like, it was like over five grand in damage. <laughs> but like the car could drive afterwards and then we just pulled over, but it was just so many things were just slightly damaged. But it's like, that's going to be real expensive to fix. But not my insurance paying for that, so whatever. Arson investigators determined that the fire was due to an electrical short, but later on, Diane confessed that she and Steve had planned the fire, blaming her ex-husband for not being able to burn the entire trailer down. Weeks later, Steve was sitting on the back of his truck with Cheryl when Diane drove up to them, brandishing the gun he had taken from her. Steve ran up to her and tried to take the gun from her through the window. She hit the gas, and Steve hung on for about 20 feet before losing his balance and falling. It's like, oh no, Steve got hurt! What a shame, because he was such a great guy. That human piece of excrement. With the money from her job, her surrogate parenting, and the insurance payout, Diane tried to start her own surrogate parent clinic. Wow. Okay, bold. She has been said to be intelligent, right? So, okay. As you might expect, this didn't get very far, with the first prospective couple splitting up before a contract could be signed, not to mention Diane's inexperience running a business. Um... I mean, you couldn't, like, I don't have any experience running a business. I sort of run a business. Yeah, I dig the way you do business, man. You've got to start somewhere. Um, I do have a business degree, though. But I really don't feel that helps. You a businessman. Like, I don't really, I mean, yeah, I don't really feel that anything I really learned in my, my business degree was like the sort of, it's the sort of 
I feel like a business degree in general, not just mine, but it prepares you to be a middle manager in a large company. It's not really like super practical for like regular everyday. Um, how did I get onto this rant? So it's like, yeah, you got to start somewhere. And also, I'm kind of surprised like the people who are considering surrogacy are splitting up. It's like, by the time you're doing surrogacy, you've gone through a lot of steps to get there. So, yeah, interesting. Diane continued to see Nick, who was torn between her and his wife. One night, Diane pressed him to answer which one of them he loved more. He answered his wife. And as you might expect, Diane went ballistic. Nick called his wife and went home. The two of them spent the remainder of the night with Diane pounding on their door. Shortly after, his- <laughs> Nick, your wife. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> she's extremely tolerant of you. Shortly afterwards, Nick and his wife took a trip to Texas for a two-week vacation. However, when Diane noticed that he was no longer at work, she, as- she assumed that he had gone to Texas to escape her. She requested a transfer to Oregon, where her parents had moved, to start life over. The Arizona office was more than happy to assist with her transfer. Some employees noted that despite her promiscuity, Diane refused to deliver copies of Playboy or Penthouse to subscribers on her route. Oh, she's actually a postal when she's out there delivering the mail. I kind of thought she was just working in the post office for some reason. Probably because I'm a sexist. <laughs> I don't know, like, all my life postmen have been men. Oh no! My postman now is a woman! What's wrong with me? <laughs> That is not nice. God, that's so weird. We have these things. It's like, I think that I don't, you know, you're like, oh, no, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a 21st century man. And you're like, oh, no, I still am a bit sexist, aren't I, apparently? <laughs> Upon finding out that Nick had not abandoned her, Dan tried to get her transfer cancelled. However, it was denied. She tried to get Nick to move to Oregon with her, and he considered going so far as to have dinner with her parents, Wes and Willa Dent, who encouraged him to move in with her. Oh, my God. I would be, if my parents had done that sort of to me, or my dad, like Wes, or Wes here, as a kid, and I was then an adult, I'd be like, yeah, you can f*** right off. Do I need you? No. I think most of us can say that a meeting, that meeting your girlfriend's parents can be a little awkward, so it's hard to imagine what was going through Nick's mind. Ultimately, Diane packed up with her kids to move across the country, a trip which took two days. Nick thought things with Diane were finally over. At least, he thought he did until he got a surprise. Just weeks after her move, Diane showed up at his mail route at work, having borrowed a jeep from one of her ex-lovers. Oh my lord, what's going on with you? It's at this point that you could be forgiven for thinking that Diane is a demon with teleportation powers. She told him about all the friends she'd made in Oregon, while he barely said a word. He made it clear that he wasn't willing to move with her, that he really wasn't ready to be a father. Diane returned home without incident. Now, it's at this point in the story where I should point out how much of what we know about Diane's life comes from her diary. She was a prolific writer, so it's easy to build a mental image of her, combine that with the numerous interviews of the people around her, and it seems like Diane's entire life can be easily documented. But on May the 11th, 1983, a week before the incident, uh, there was a sudden shift in tone in her diary. Previously, she obsessively wrote about Nick, barely mentioning her children at all. Now her children came to be front and center with entries that sound so saccharine that they're more suspicious than they are sweet. To quote, They stand by me no matter what. Danny says he's my best buddy and I'm his best buddy. He's always giving me kisses and hugs. Every morning when I go to work, he waves and says, Bye, mum. Pick me up after work. I love you. He's beautiful and always so happy. Oh my god, I realize I don't keep a diary or anything, but that is the that I would write in my diary. And I don't think it's saccharine. I mean, I think, obviously, this is extremely darkly tilted by what we know is about to happen, apparently. Um, 
But it's like, I don't know, <laughs> it is really like my kids. <laughs> That's the sort of shit I'd write. And it's true, like every day, like I take my kid to school, the older one, to school in the morning. And she loves school, so she's always happy to like to like leave. But we ride together on the tram on the way to work and she's always like wanting to hold my hands and look out the window and she asks me questions. And then when she goes, it's so sweet and she just goes and plays with the other kids. And then she says to my wife, she's always like, um, when because my wife picks her up from school and she's always like, dad, where's dad? Because I dropped her off. Not that, you know, she's happy to see mum as well, obviously. But she's always like, um, she's like, where's dad? And then when I get home from work in the evening, she always runs over to me and gives me a hug. And the boy, he's just like one. So he's a little like, you know, less engaged but he's also so sweet this is exactly the sort of rides that's cute simon now the number one rule for the casual criminalist is not to write down your crimes but diane seems like she's going a bit too far in the other direction she stopped just short of writing boy i sure would be sad if somebody tried to murder my children a particular note was a passage describing the brass unicorn that she'd bought oh i found a beautiful brass unicorn in a store window i'm going to buy it for christy cheryl and danny then i'll have it engraved I know they'll like it. She had told the store clerk that she needed to have it by the date of May the 13th, 1983, which is quite puzzling as there was no anniversary or special event on that day. In fact, nothing of note happened at all. That is, unless the unicorn was known to be a present, but rather a memorial. Oh God, it does sound kind of memorial-y, doesn't it? She can't seem to face up to the facts. Now we return to that fateful night. Out on a dark road, three children had been shot. Cheryl was dead. Christy and Danny had survived their injuries, but only thanks to the quick work of hospital staff. Diane herself had been shot, though a bullet in the arm was far less life-threatening than what her children had gone through. Personally, I'm just happy they get to write about the investigation now, rather than having to decide which instances of emotional abuse are noteworthy enough to be included here. After reading through her diary, lead prosecutor Fred Hoogie, ah, the legends, was still puzzled. He thought Steve or Nick could have been the mysterious, shaggy-haired stranger that Diane described. Both of them were across the country that night. It was more likely that she had shot them herself, but the lack of any hard evidence would make it hard to obtain an arrest warrant. Diane had given many interviews to investigators, but as cooperative as she had been, she became very impatient with them. She refused to give consent for surgery that would remove the bullet fragments from Christie's shoulder or to let the children's wounds be photographed when she was subpoenaed to testify in front of a grand jury. She refused to go for months. It was unheard of for a victim to refuse to testify in a murder investigation, but Diane was not your average victim. If you've been subpoenaed to testify, you don't have a choice, right? Like, that's the point of a subpoena. It's like, yo, you're going to court. <laughs> it's not like, hey, please show up to court. It's like, you're going to court. <laughs> Otherwise, we'll come get you. Yeah. Even machines must obey the law. But the Americans, you have that, um, you complete the fifth, right? Where you're like, no comment, no comment. No, or I, I've seen enough legal dramas. Like, I'm going to assert my rights under the Fifth Amendment or whatever they say. In one of the interviews she gave police during this period, she reenacted the night of the murder on the videotape with a similar car. Now, it should be noted that not everyone processes grief in the same way. I found myself cracking jokes during sad moments, which can help me hope. Having said that, Diane's behavior during this video is straight up odd. For a woman who supposedly watched a stranger shoot her children mere days earlier, she was in a remarkably good mood. Giddy, giggling, telling jokes as she retraced her steps. You're making yourself look like a right psycho, Diane. At one point, she accidentally bumps her cast on the doorframe, wincing in pain. After regaining her composure, she laughs and says, This is worse than the... Before stopping, uh, worse than the... What? When she was shot? 
Perhaps. Diane continued to visit her children in the hospital. Christy was slowly regaining her ability to speak, working with counselor Paula Krogdahl, and her mother often communicated with her in hushed whispers. On June the 10th, the deputy witnessed Christy say to her mother, Paula was here today, but I didn't talk about nothing. Nevertheless, guards refused to let Diane speak to her daughter alone. Good. Diane underwent surgery for her arm. When it was finally completed, she woke up to a nasty surprise. Prosecutor Hughie had requested Christy and Diane be removed from Diane's custody, which a judge had granted. She was still allowed to see them in hospital, but she would not be taking them home. Naturally, Diane was furious, and she told them that she would take the children out of the hospital herself. Um, do you not? She just doesn't seem to understand, like, the power of courts. <laughs> it's like when a judge is like, yo, you, you don't have custody of your children anymore. You don't have custody of your children anymore. When a subpoena says you show up to court, you have to show up to court. You can't just be like, no, I actually do have custody of my children still. I'm taking them home. No, you're not. It's not how it works. The police will stop you. However, let's be real. With one child in a wheelchair and another hooked up to life support, even the most devoted mother would have a hard time making good on that threat, especially when the police are also there to stop you. While Diane, also, it would be like, if you don't have custody of those children anymore... It would be like me showing up to hospital and being like, uh, yeah, that kid, I'm taking him home. The hospital would be like, who the f*** are you? And get the f- out of here. Like, that's not happening. While Diane was in surgery, another investigator tried to interview Danny about what had happened. Unfortunately, the three-year-old was not able to talk at any length about the incident, either not able to comprehend the events of that night, or too scared, saying, not supposed to answer, not supposed to answer. My kid's, my kid's not quite three, they're like... Three months, two months away from being three. And it's just crazy, like, the amount of how fast development happens at that age. Because my kid would, the idea that they could keep a secret would be like, I'll sometimes be like, okay, you can have this chocolate lolly, but don't tell mum because we already brushed your teeth. And then she'll be like, chocolate lolly. And my, and my wife will be like, did dad give you a chocolate lolly? Yes. <laughs> it's like, come on. The kids are so cute. Officers interviewed people who had been in the area that night, even potential suspects who could be the shaggy-haired stranger. Every lead turned out to be a dead end, with men of interest having been in jail on the night of the question, on the night in question, or not matching the description that Diane gave. The closest thing they have to a witness was a man who had spotted her red Nissan driving down the road that night. It would have been after the shooting that had happened. Yet the man noted the only thing unusual about the car was how slowly it was moving, maxing out at 10 miles per hour. There was no cry for help, no sounds of yelling or screaming. Diane had been shot, yes, but you might reasonably expect that a woman whose kids were dying would have a greater sense of urgency. Danny continued to give conflicting accounts of the events of the night, saying that there had indeed been a man there that night, but on another occasion he told officers his mother had ran him over with a car. Okay. This is this seems like confused three-year-old. As abusive of a mother, Diane may have been. There was no evidence of this. Christy, on the other hand, was slowly regaining both her ability to speak and her memory of the night. However, I do believe a three-year-old, because they're three, could definitely confuse being shot with being run over. Because it'd be like, I'm in a car and something super intense happened to me. I was run over. Like, three-year-olds, their brains don't work properly yet. That makes sense. With more counseling, she might be the only person who could give a clear account of what had happened. After five weeks of treatment, she was finally released from the hospital and put into a foster home. The police had trouble finding enough hard evidence to prove Diane was the killer. The main issue was the gun used in the shooting. From the bullets that were recovered, they knew she had access to a gun that matched, but the gun itself was nowhere to be seen, likely disposed of in the river. An extensive search party searched the surrounding area, including diving in the river, but nothing was found. At least they had the support of those who knew Diane best. Steve, Nick, and her sister Kathy, who all believed Diane was the culprit. <laughs> Holy 
<laughs> it's closing in on you, Diane. Those bells that were ringing with me at the beginning are spot on. Nick Eno had gone so far as to call her himself, recording the call and trying to get her to confess over the phone. During one of these calls, she even claims there had been two assailants. Diane's parents were the only ones who believed in her innocence. Though given their parenting style, I would say that their judgment isn't very sound. Yeah, um, nah, like, no. They're, 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 this was not good. Going against the lawyer's advice, Diane would talk to absolutely anyone who would listen. She made numerous media appearances, and before long, everyone in town knew who she was. They also knew that she was a suspect herself. Despite her antagonism with the police, Diane insisted on talking to them regularly, often changing her story. She changed the man's appearance, now claiming that he had called her by name and knew about her too. Police poked as many holes in her story as they could, but she remained adamant that it was a man who had shot her children. Diane interviewed with the investigators endlessly, going through multiple tapes in a single session. Over time, they became more agitated with her, beginning to accuse her more and more directly. She frequently threatened to leave, only for the investigators to remind her that she was free to go at any time. On pressed on why the man would have been okay with Dan driving away with her children, she responded, I told you he didn't come to take the car. The interviewers could not have been more confused, and when asked for clarification, Dan became evasive. They continued to point out the implausibility of her story. Uh, when she finally had had enough, she told them, Okay, since you guys seem to think I should have brought the guy in with me, I will get him myself, and I'll bring him back, because I know who did it. Understandably, they were rather stunned. You know his name, they said. It's like, did you not want to bring this up before? You described him as a shaggy-haired stranger. Now you, stranger, now you know who he is. It's just ridiculous. The investigators must be like, we just got to find something to nail her. We know she did it. We know she did it. Who's that policeman? Go find that policeman who had that talking to, who gave that the like, but the the um scared the dad. Like, go find him. He's probably some Dexter character. Be like, yeah, we know she's guilty, and he'll be like, I'll take care of it. <laughs> Legend. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. You know him by name. Yes. However, she walked out without telling them the name of the man who shot her children. Later that day, the phone rang. It's Diane. She rambled incoherently for a while before hanging up, still not giving the name of her attacker. Soon, after five months in the hospital, Danny would join his sister in the foster home. He remained in a wheelchair, and unfortunately, it'd require one for the rest of his life. Christy herself had suffered partial facial paralysis from the incident. Even if their minds could move on from the trauma of that night, their bodies would not. Diane, meanwhile, was the loneliest she had ever been in her life. She drank frequently, would go out and pick up random men. None of her friends in Oregon or Arizona wanted anything to do with her. There was one exception. A man she met while working a postal route in Oregon. He had heard the news stories, of course, but he had trouble believing that this friendly woman could have done something so horrible. The two began to date, and before long they became intimate. Soon Diane began to obsess over him, showing up at his home constantly, wanting to spend as much time with him as possible. Feeling smothered, he gave notice to his landlord and found a new home twenty minutes away, not telling her his new address. But two nights before he was due to move out, Diane came over for one last date. The man was reluctant, but she was determined to get him in bed. Ultimately, she succeeded. The two made love, and Diane downed as pregnant once again. Hungry like the wolf. 
While Diane had been barred from seeing her children, Steve wasn't. However, he had started to gain sympathy for her and decided that while taking Christy out, he would allow Diane to spend time with their daughter. However, Danny had to be supervised, so Diane was able to spend only time with Christy alone and unsupervised. Steve briefly thought that she had kidnapped her daughter, but fortunately the child returned without further incidents. That said, Christy was noticeably quiet that evening at the foster home. Meanwhile, the man who had just gotten Diane pregnant had a friend over who did not believe him when he said that he knew the woman from the media. With a few drinks in him, he called Diane and invited her over to his new address to prove his friend wrong. Dude, you moved house to get a new address. You're like, I'll prove you wrong. And you invite her over to your new address, which moving house is a hassle, my dude. What? You had too many drinks. You made an error. You're going to regret this. That was a mistake. She immediately came over, sharing the news about her pregnancy. For months after, wow, dude, this did not go how you expected, did it? For months afterwards, she sent numerous letters to his home, which he ignored. On occasion, he would find messages left on his car's window and got in the habit of hiding whenever the postal jeep approached. Diane also made a point of filing tort claims against Lane County regarding how they had taken custody of her children without charging her of a crime. She went to the media, frequently asking why they wouldn't arrest her if they thought she was guilty. The reason, of course, was because they needed Christie to be able to testify about what happened, but forcing an eight-year-old victim into court before she's ready would be a recipe for disaster. Diane's pregnancy was also a concern, bringing charges against a pregnant woman could help her gain sympathy with the jury. The best they could do for the time being was to give Diane a one-year suspended sentence for violating visitation rights. For Christie's therapy sessions, the counselor had been given a copy of Rio, the Duran Duran cassette found in Diane's car on the night of the murder. He would play it for her, hoping the songs on the tape might jog her memory. For months, they tried different tactics to get Christy to open up, when one day, they finally had a breakthrough. They made different children's dolls to represent her and her siblings and arranged two couches to imitate the front and back seat of her car. Oh my god, this is like... I know they have to do this, but it's like, Jesus Christ, that is not... That is going to be mega traumatic for that kid. Like, sometimes I just feel... Like, and doesn't psychiatry or psychology go this way? Where it's like, sometimes there's shit in your past that it's just best to shut the door on. Where it's like, let's just not open that can of worms. And let's, isn't this what the um, CBT, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, is all about? It's like about building better habits and dealing with the results of things rather than being like, okay, let's dive through every aspect of your past and open up all of those wounds to like treat them properly. Where sometimes a wound is just better scabbed over and a scar. You know, they asked Christy to play the part of her mother. Then they watched as she walked to the rear, where they presumed Diane had kept her gun, then to the doors, where she leaned in and made pointing motions at each of the dolls. She began sobbing hysterically, so they ended the session before she could be upset further. It would take more time before she would be ready to testify. But make no mistake, they finally had what they needed for a conviction. On February the 28th, 1984, approximately nine months after the incident, Diane Downs was arrested on charges of murder, attempted murder, and assault in the first degree. At this point, the five months pregnant mother had resigned herself to the inevitable, having finally confessed to Willard Din about the sexual abuse that she'd suffered as a child. She even had her diaries in the car the morning she was arrested, and officer stated that she seemed relieved when, when she arrived at the courtroom the next day, she pled not guilty in case we go to trial. At first, it appeared as if Diane's defense attorney would be Melvin Burley, who had previously defended Jack Ruby. Ruby, isn't that the guy who killed the guy who killed Kennedy? Right? 
Reeb, if you're not aware, was a man who shot Lee Harvey Oswald. Thank you. The assassin of President Kennedy. Ultimately, due to a scheduling conflict, he would not be able to participate. Even in prison, Diane found love. That was just an interesting sidebar there. While awaiting her trial, she made a pen pal of Randall Woodfield, better known as the I-5 killer. Diane was not surprised at all to learn that she had been writing back and forth with a serial killer. Your life, what the f*** is going on? On the first day of the trial, I think we got the... I feel like I've got that guy coming up. I feel like one of my writers has pitched the I-5 killer to me. I think that might be in production. On the first day of the trial, prosecutor Fred Hughie outlined what had happened. Diane had fallen in love with Robert Knickerbocker, and when he told her that he did not want to be a father, she attempted to end her children's lives so that she could have him. She then shot herself in the arm and drove them to the hospital to make it look like she was trying to rescue them. Hughie produced one of the letters Diane wrote to Nick, known as the Masturbation Poem. I imagine Simon would prefer I not reprint the poem here. Definitely not. I don't want to read it. I don't want that on YouTube. Let's just not. Thank God. A witness from the ER that night testified that Diane asked her, Are they dead yet? With no emotion whatsoever. That's f- Various employees from the hospital talked about how composed she was, expecting a woman in that position to be in hysterics. Doctors testified how Christie had teetered on the edge of death more than any patient they'd ever had. According to the surgeon who operated on Christie, Diane had come into the room during treatment and told him, I know that Christie has sustained brain damage, and I don't want you to sustain her life. The x-ray technician recalled how Diane complained about having her x-ray picture taken when she wasn't wearing any makeup. You know what? Yes, yeah, so you were like relatively bright. You know what an X-ray is, right? <laughs> it looks through you. <laughs> Finally, it was Christie's turn. The now nine-year-old girl had suffered a stroke and developed a speech impediment, so no one, prosecution or defense, could say with 100% certainty how reliable a witness she would be. To make matters easier, they brought one of Christie's foster sisters into the room to sit in the front row during her testimony. As Christie took the stand, she had to lift her right arm into her lap with the other hand as she had lost motor function of it during that night. Fred Hughie carefully asked Christie to recall the events of that night step by step. She gave short answers, but she was still able to describe the night with Hughie's help. She told the room that her mother had shot Cheryl, herself, and Danny. In fact, she remembered hearing the song Hungry Like the Wolf the moment it happens. Once Hughie was finished questioning Christie, Diane's lawyer proceeded to cross-examine her in what must have been the worst moment of her entire life. Evidently, Diane's defense strategy was to see if Christie had confused the events of the night with the prior trip they'd taken to the beach earlier that week. Christie remained steadfast and firm about what she had seen. Later testimonies revealed that when they had replayed the cassette in the counselor's office, hungry like the wolf caused Christie's expression to change to one of sheer terror. In fact, it turned out that the tape player in the car only worked when the keys were in the ignition. Diane had repeatedly told authorities that she had pretended to throw her keys to distract the shooter, which we now know couldn't have been the case if Christie heard the song. To help recreate the events of that night, the prosecution brought in a stereo to play Hungry Like the Wolf. Oh my god. <laughs> this is so... I mean, you have to do it. We have to do it to get the f- Diane in prison. But this is so harsh on Christie. If you're unfamiliar with the 1982 song from Duran Duran, I am unfamiliar with it. I don't know if I... Duran Duran is sing um, that song. How's it go? Take me on... That's Duran Duran, right? I think that's the only song I know of this. Sorry, no. Not that one. Well, here are the lyrics to the chorus. In touch with the ground, I'm on the hunt. I'm after you. Smell like I sound. I'm lost in a crowd. And I'm hungry like the wolf. While the song was played just to give a sense of what happened the night of the murder, it had an unexpected side effect. Diane began to smile and giggle. 
Diane could be seen tapping her foot to the rhythm, snapping her fingers, mouthing the words of the song. You'd expect a woman on trial for murder to be more on edge, but evidently, she didn't have a care in the world, because she's a psycho. After the prosecution rested, Diane finally took the stand to present her case. She spent four days on the stand, describing every event in her life, from the abuse she suffered as a child, her failed marriage, her affairs, numerous pregnancies, trying to present the image of a frail woman incapable of harming her children. More witnesses were called to try and give credence to the shaggy-haired stranger theory. The defense seemed to argue that Christie was unreliable as a witness due to her age and injuries, yet simultaneously, Diane's wildly different versions of the night were understandable as a byproduct of a traumatized mind. The biggest hole, though, was that the murder weapon was never found. It was true that the bullets recovered matched a gun Diane had access to, but without the murder weapon itself, it was impossible to confirm with certainty. It's true that she could have tossed the gun in the river where it drifted downstream, never to be seen again, but this was nothing more than a theory. Yeah, I mean, so she got rid of it. That's it. She just got rid of it. It's not that hard. I mean, I know some people recover the guns all the time, but there's ways to get rid of guns. Like the big-ass river. <laughs> Fine. Finally, after closing arguments, the jury went to deliberate. With a mountain of diary entries, tape recordings, and witness testimonies to look over, deliberations were not swift. It took three full days of waiting, but finally, the jury came back with a verdict. Diane Downs was guilty of all charges. Yes! Like that. Let's go. That's my man! She fought the law, and the law won. Aren't we forgetting something? Oh, yes! Diane was pregnant. Oh, my. Ten days after the verdict, Diane went into labor. It's odd looking back at it now, considering Elizabeth Holmes' 2022 trial was delayed due to her pregnancy, but perhaps it makes sense that a first-degree murder charge is less likely <laughs> to have delayed a trial than wire fraud. Yes. <laughs> Hell, if Diane had given birth sooner, the judge could have saved everyone some time by announcing it's a girl during her conviction. Amy Elizabeth Downs was born on the 27th of June 1984. Hours later, Diane was back in jail, having been stripped of her newly born child. She wrote to the father, who, knowing full well how promiscuous she was, refused to believe the child was really his. Two months later, the judge sentenced Diane to life plus 50 years in prison, with a 25-year mandatory minimum. How about no mandatory minimum? Okay, mandatory minimum. How about just throw away the key? Like, this is not someone who you want returning to society. She's murdered her children. Like... This is a don't leave prison situation. Why are you adding on those 50 years and then being like, but she has to spend 25 days minimum? She could be out now because this was happening in the 1980s. That's nuts. Let's see how it goes. Uh, to quote the judge, the court hopes the defendant will never again be free. Well, why not just give her the, 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 the never be free sentence then? Life without parole. Let's go. During the drive to the prison, Diane reportedly wriggled onto her back, spread her legs wide and made seductive eye contact with the driver when he turned to look at her. Thankfully, she wasn't his type. Christy and Danny spent three years in the foster home before being adopted by Fred Hughie. No! Hughie! Legend! Oh, this is the this is the prosecutor! This is the pri- I love you, Fred Hoogie. Well, you can call me Freddy. Since seeing them in the hospital in 1983, it felt a sense of duty to protect them, a duty that still felt unfulfilled now that their mother was in prison. Amy was adopted by another family and would have no memories of her birth mother. And yet Diane's story was not quite over. I can't get over about what a good man you are, Fred Hugi. If you're still a... Uh, you legend. You absolute legend. On the morning of July the 11th, 1987, three years after her conviction, Diane Downs dressed in layers as she entered the prison yard. She told a couple of fellow prisoners, 
I'm going now, and proceeded to climb the fence of the medium security prison, the razor wire proving not much of a hindrance. She made it to the other side and ran to freedom. Embarrassingly, this was the prison's fifth escape attempt in the past decade. That's not an escape. Uh, fifth successful attempt in the past decade. Sorry, I don't know why I said attempt there. It doesn't say anything. Isn't it true that everyone who escapes from prison pretty much ends up back in prison in like a week or something? There's some crazy statistic about that. It's like 99.9% or something. I'm going to bet she's back in prison or, you know, killed in like a shootout with the police within, I'm saying less than, saying less than five days. The police received a call from a woman who claimed to have seen her. Evidently, this woman was driving down the road with her family when a woman who fit Diane's description stood in the road and stopped their van. Wow, she really was projecting, wasn't she? <laughs> Diane told the woman that her boyfriend was hurt and that she needed a ride into town, forcing her way into the front seat of the car. The woman drove Diane to her destination and let her out, thankfully, with nobody being hurt. It was like, oh, we've arrived at your destination, Diane. The police station. Everyone with even a vague connection to the Downs case was on high alert. Nick and his wife were contacted by the local SWAT team, worried that she may try to track them down for revenge. Her ex-husband, Steve, prosecutor Hughie, and Anne Rule, an author of a book about the case, were all worried Diane might try to find and kill them. Over a week past, ah, okay, my, uh, what was it say, five days? Okay. That was funny. That was funny. The tip line was flooded with calls of potential sightings, though it was difficult to pass what was real and what was just the imagination of frightened citizens. Finally, a detective looked back over the papers in Diane's cell and noticed faint markings on one of them. The markings could not be read with the naked eye, so they were sent to a lab for analysis. After a few days and a moment straight out of CSI, they were able to discern an address from the markings, which was not far from where Diane had asked to be dropped off. Upon searching the house, it was discovered that Diane had been staying with Wayne Cipher, the husband of one of her fellow inmates, Louise Cipher. Diane would later claim that she had identified the man responsible for killing her children and she had escaped so that she could hunt her down himself. While staying with Wayne, the two had had sex multiple times, but she did not get pregnant. Upon her capture, Diane was transferred to a maximum security prison where she remains to this day. Excellent. I think <laughs> there were five escapes in the past decade from medium security. You ain't getting out of that maximum security one. Wrap up. Diane Downs may not be a serial killer, but she is terrifying nonetheless. Like many subjects on this podcast, she had an abusive childhood and it turns her into a monster. Uh, yeah, partly. I think this, this uh, childhood was obviously an absolute nightmare, but plenty of people have absolutely nightmarish childhoods and don't turn out to be monsters. They turn out to be regular people who break the cycle like good human beings. This is its nature and nurture combined. She had a strong intellect a weak emotional state, a deadly combination. She was cunning, manipulative, and saw the people around her, even her children, as nothing more than pawns to get what she wanted, which ironically was to be loved. So let's say she succeeded in her mission. Her three kids died and she got to play the role of grieving mother. Would Nick have felt so much sympathy he would have left his own wife and married her unburdened by children? Probably not. Her plan was incoherent and short-sighted, which makes it all the stranger that she nearly got away with it. If Christy had not come back from the brink of death, it's possible she would have walked free. A brass unicorn, meant to be a memento of her dead children, turned out to be nothing more than a symbol of her failed plot. In 1988, Diane was interviewed on The Oprah Winfrey Show alongside Anne Rule, the author of Small Sacrifices, the book about the case. Wait, like, out of prison? They let her go out of prison to do an interview on a TV show? That's f- insane. 
While I dislike the practice of giving killers a platform to speak on, I can't help but admit that the interview is entertaining. It's clear Diane is enjoying being on national television, even if the audience in the room loathes her. At times, it almost seems like she's treating Rule not as an adversary, but as an old friend. That's f- I, It's more f- that they let... Why would someone be allowed out of jail to go on a TV show? That's insane. You're giving a platform to someone who's murdered their children. What the f- is going on? Oprah Winfrey show... And also American justice system, or whoever allowed that. This is absolute insanity. Said what we live in, huh? As for the children, Danny and Christy have kept quiet lives. Their disabilities remain with them to this day, but they're alive and well. Christy, having named one of her children Cheryl after her deceased sister, Downs' last child. Amy was renamed Bethy Babcock and has made media appearances where she talks about the mother she never knew. Uh, for a moment there, I thought, why are we naming her? <laughs> like, don't do that. And then it's obviously she's got a platform and she talks about this stuff, so good, happy to. Diane Downs last had a parole hearing in 2020, but it was denied. Excellent. More than likely, she'll remain in prison for the rest of her life. Again, I'll repeat, excellent. Where she belongs. Dismembered appendices. If you recognize the name Anne Rule, it's because she was a prolific true crime writer. Her most famous book was The Stranger Beside Me, detailing her time working at the suicide hotline alongside her co-worker Ted Bundy. Yes, and I indeed remember this from a previous episode. Her book about the Downs case, Small Sacrifices, was later made into a movie in 1989 starring Farrah Fawcett. You may not recognize the actress's name, but you might know her as the red swimsuit model on the best-selling poster of all time. I do feel like I know the name Farrah Fawcett. Um... And I don't know what swimsuit model like this is, what what this is, but I don't know why I know that name. In 2014, Yoplait had to retract an ad it had made to sell yogurt. Yoplait? I don't know it. Why? Because the ad featured the song Hungry Like the Wolf, and it received so much backlash that Duran Duran made a public statement asking them to pull it from television. Yoplait denied having any knowledge of the Downs case when the advertisement was made, which was 30 years after the incident. Well, yeah. <laughs> It'd be very weird if they did know about it. Of course they didn't know. It's just a mistake. Curiously, an Old Spice ad starring Bruce Campbell made several years earlier also featured the song, but came and went without controversy because someone heard it and was like, wait a minute, isn't this the this? And then it caused like a big old kind of unnecessary, in my opinion, stink. So how about we don't just associate one a song with the most horrible thing that happens around it? That seems a little bit much. Um, this is the end of the episode. Thank you so much for listening to it or watching it if you watch on YouTube. Reviews for the podcast version are always loved. Like and subscribe, and I'll see you next time. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.